0: Good morning. So while you're looking up Hebrews 12, 18 to 29, um, what we just prayed with Chad and together, like we don't often think about our lives being like, you know, like the grass that grows up and then it's gone, like we're here for a moment. But there are things that last forever, and what we're about to read is the Word of God spoken and then thank God written so that we can hear his voice right now and you all have been coming here for a while so you know that this is central hearing what God says is central and If you've been a Christian for more than, you know, 20 minutes, you'll know that you really do hear God's voice when you read his word and when you're really, when you're thirsty and you're hungry for that. And if there's been times in your life, as there have been in our lives, where you just think, I can't, I can't get up and live today if I don't get something, if I don't hear from God right now, something to give me hope and strength to keep believing and to keep going and every time every time we open this we can be in that place with God so I pray that he would speak as I read and I pray that he'll speak as Alan comes up here and opens his mouth that we don't even see Alan he gets hidden away behind the cross and we just hear God speak to us today that's an amazing thing so now I'm going to read this So it's Hebrews 12, we're going to start at verse 18 and go to verse 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised yet once more for our God is a consuming fire, and this is the Word of God.
1: if I don't know you, um, my name's Alan. I am one of the pastors here at village as of January. Um, my wife nice <laughs> Rachel she take Rachel everywhere she's the biggest encourager. Um, but my wife, uh, Jane, and I have been going to the village for probably about coming on five years now. Uh, we've been members of the church. Um, we have two wee girls, Ruby and Isla, and they're uh, involved in the church as well over in East. And, um, well, we love our church family. I love the chance to be able to come here as well. I was trying to remember the last time I was in South. And I think it was sometime in 2019. Um, It was definitely pre-pandemic anyway, but you guys have maybe seen me then online um, and uh, whenever we've been together as two congregations. But it's really good to be here today. Um, Andrew told me when I was coming um, that I was to say something pastory about the belong class. I don't know what that means, but and I tried to ask him, what do you mean by that? But he said, just say something that a pastor would say. So um, here goes. Um, he, he kind of was encouraging me to, um, I suppose, let you know why membership is important, um, why coming along to our Belong class might be important as well. Um, and the, really, the, the best thing I can say is that it's, it's biblical. It's something the Bible tells us to be part of a local church, to be members in a local church. Uh, And another big reason, uh, amongst lots of others, is that um, it's not just about becoming a member of a church, it's not just about you making a commitment to the church and to the church family, it's about the church family and the elders making a commitment to you as well. It's where we grow, it's where we're encouraged, it's where we're um, exhorted and admonished to keep running this race together. It's a community project, and so that's why membership is really important. And so hopefully that's what Andrew meant when he said, say something pastory. But I would really encourage you to come along to the um, belong classes, the membership classes. It's a great time to be able to meet church leaders, find out a little bit more about the kind of inner workings of things here at Village, what goes on, why we do what we do. Also just to find out um, things and ask questions as well. Um, So do sign up for that and come along to that. I'll just pray uh, just before we dive into our passage again. um, Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that it is living and it's breathing and it's active. As Rachel has said to us, that you speak to us through your word this morning. Lord, I pray you would today. I pray that you would, in this difficult passage, in this tough passage, Lord, that you would um, remind us of why we all desperately need Jesus. Why the gospel is so crucial. Lord, I pray that You'd encourage us if we're Christians to keep looking to Jesus, see that he is our refuge and he is the one who is our shelter. Um, Lord, I pray as well, if if anyone hasn't yet put their trust in Jesus, that today that they would see um, there is a real urgency in them coming to Jesus and trusting in him, that uh, life um, is offered in him alone and in nothing else in this world. I pray these things in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want you to imagine, uh, you maybe have seen this on TV before, but I want you to imagine that you've got uh, a world leader or uh, a state governor, say, in America, for example, who's come on the screen on the TV, a press conference, and they're there warning their people about an incoming storm. Maybe it's a hurricane or a tornado, it's something anyway, that is gonna have a massive impact. It's gonna leave a trail of destruction. And you can see them on the screen. They're calm, they're somber. They've got a seriousness to the tone that they've got. They're encouraging their people to find refuge and shelter from the storm. They're warning their people that if they don't heed this warning, there will be dire consequences. But they're encouraging them that if they do, if they do listen, if they they seek refuge, if they find shelter, they'll make it through the storm. They will come out the other side. When I read that passage that Rachel read out to us today, that was the, the first picture that came into my mind as I thought about This writer to the Hebrews, where we're at now in this book, if you've been with us through this series in Hebrews, we're nearly at the end. He's preparing to land his sermon. And he takes a real seriousness in this last uh, warning, the last of the five warnings that there are in the book of Hebrews. Because this is Mechabrech stuff here. He wants them to see that there is a storm ahead, a storm like no other. He wants these Jewish Christians to find refuge and shelter in the one and only place that it can be found, in Jesus Christ. He's imploring them to heed this warning, to not throw away what they have in Jesus, what they've heard about Jesus, to not shrink back in their faith, even though they're, they're facing trials and struggles in following him. They're not to go back to the old covenant ways of the past and their ancestors because the consequences of that, of throwing away what they have in Jesus in the new covenant, the consequences will be catastrophic. He's encouraging these Jew- Jewish Christians who are flagging and who are finding things tough. He's, he's encouraging them one last time to keep going, to keep pressing on, to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus as they run this race, to know all the blessings that they have in Jesus, to know that if they do keep looking to him, if they keep trusting in him, they will make it through the storm and they will come out the other side in glory, everlasting glory. I want to level with you this morning. This is a, a tough passage The writer, he doesn't pull any punches here. And he's going to give us, as well as these Jewish Christians, the most sobering of warnings, especially for anyone who might be thinking of walking away from Jesus. He does that because he loves these Christians, he loves these people, he doesn't want any of them to perish. He wants them all to stay strong in their faith, to keep persevering to the end because he wants them all to be there in glory. If I could summarize what this writer is saying in this passage today, here's what it is. What we receive in the new covenant and in Jesus Christ is far greater, far better than anything we experience in the old. The blessings of the new covenant are so much better than the blessings of the old. But with that, also comes greater accountability. Greater blessings means greater accountability. And so we must not refuse Jesus and his word. We cannot. That's what he says to them in verse 25 of our passage today. Don't throw away what you have in Jesus because the consequences of that are dire. They're not worth thinking about. But rather... Live a life of thanksgiving and worship to God. That's what he's saying to them this morning. And I just want us to look at our passage here in two parts. The first part is this, the greater blessings of the new covenant. So I want us to be reminded, as he wants to remind these uh, Jews, of their greater blessings in the new covenant. And then I want us to be reminded of the greater accountability that there is with the new covenant. The greater blessings and the greater accountability. So, the greater blessings of the new covenant. That's what he's talking about in verses 18 to 24. And he says to them, What you've received in the new covenant in Jesus Christ is so much better than what the children of Israel received from Moses in the old covenant. Where you've come to now in Jesus is so much better than where they were in the old covenant and it's so much better than what you're being tempted to go back to because remember that's what these Jewish Christians were thinking of they were tempted to go back to the old covenant ways of their past I notice the word for at the beginning of verse 18 it links us back to what he's been talking about already this is why we press on in this race even though it's tough at times this is why we accept rather than despise God's discipline in our lives This is why we can strengthen our tired hands and weak knees and make straight paths for our feet. Because through Jesus in the new covenant, the blessings we've received are so much better. And he shows us this by contrasting two mountains. So verse 18, for you have not come to what could be touched. Now we're going to say that's a physical mountain. What could be touched? That's Mount Sinai. And then verse 22, he says, "But you have come to Mount Zion." Now I struggled massively in the last gathering between Sinai and Zion. I just kept getting them mixed up. I'm going to try my best this time to not. They're just very similar, whenever you're at the front saying them. But basically here's what he's saying, "In Jesus and the New Covenant, your home address isn't Mount Sinai, it's Mount Zion. You've not come to Mount Sinai, to the Old Covenant, to Moses you come to Mount Zion, to Jesus, to the new covenant, and it's so much better. And, and we need to grasp what these two mountains represent in order to know why it's better. So Mount Sinai, it was the physical mountain that Moses climbed to receive God's law on behalf of Israel. So Mount Sinai, it represents the old covenant and the law. But then we've got Mount Zion. We're going to see it's the, the city of the living God. That's what he says to us in the passage, the heavenly Jerusalem. So it represents... Where believers have come to now in Jesus, it represents the gospel of grace. And we see in verses 18 to 24, there's a massive difference between these two mountains. I want you to come with me uh, in your Bible, if you have one, to Exodus 19. Turn to Exodus 19. Keep your finger in in Hebrews 12 uh, as well, so that we can see the scene where uh, he's talking about here in Exodus 19. That's where... uh, The children of Israel came to, with Moses, to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And this is what he's describing in Hebrews 12. Mount Sinai, we're going to see, it was a place of terror. It was a terrifying experience for the people of Israel. It was uh, such a fearful thing for these sinful men and women who knew they were sinful to stand in the presence of a holy and a mighty God. And look how unapproachable and impersonal God is at Mount Sinai. Look at Exodus 19 verse 12. The Lord commands Moses to warn the people of Israel not to go up to Mount Sinai or even to touch the mountain or they would die. That's the punishment. It's severe. They were even told that if an animal, an innocent animal so much as touched the mountain when God was present, they were to stone that animal to death. That's what he's talking about here in verse 20 of Hebrews 12. We get this picture in Exodus 19 of all this red tape around Mount Sinai, all these danger signs at the foot of the mountain, warning the people, don't get too close, stay away because if you so much as touch this mountain when God is present, you will die. The punishment's severe. Look at verses 16 to 19 of Exodus 19. When the Lord was present on the mountain, it was consumed by thick smoke. There were earthquakes, thunder and lightning, a very loud trumpet blast that grew louder and louder with every blow. This is what the writer is talking about in verse 18 of Hebrews 12. It's a terrifying scene, a frightening experience. Sinful men and women quaking in their boots as they witness God's incomparable power and his glory and his sheer holiness. The writer even says that Moses, the great patriarch of Israel, he was trembling with fear at what he saw. See, this isn't a God to take lightly. This isn't a God to be casual or nonchalant around, a God to ignore. This is a God who is glorious who is awesome, who leaves people awestruck, filled with fear, reverent fear when they stand in the presence of his holiness. And I think in our day and age, it's easy for us to lose this sense of awe and wonder when we think of God. What we tend to do is we tend to domesticate God. We bring him down to our level A level we are more comfortable with maybe or can handle a bit more. This isn't the picture we get here of God. This isn't the God of the Bible. And if you turn over to Exodus 20 with me, I want you to see the response of the people when God himself speaks to them at Mount Sinai. Do you know, uh, there's maybe that person you think of whenever they, they speak, they just command a room. Their voice is bellowing commands people's respect. They sit up and they listen. My uh, principal of my primary school, Mr. McElrath, I'll never forget, He's, he's a man that wouldn't raise his voice often, but when he did, oh, people stood still, bolt upright in their seats. People dared not say anything in his presence. Such was his voice and the command that was in his voice. Look at the gathered people of God, thousands upon thousands of them, hearing the unfiltered voice of God at Mount Sinai. Look how they respond. Verse 18 of Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The people were already standing at a distance from God at Mount Sinai, and when they heard his voice, they moved even further away. They hear God's voice and they say to Moses, never let God speak to us again. Please, no, you speak to us on his behalf if he's got something to say to us. So terrifying is the experience of hearing God's voice. See, this was the mountain to which the people of Israel had come to. This was the way they related to God in the old covenant. And the writer says to the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, and this is what you want to go back to. This is what you would rather have. Remember the terrors of Mount Sinai. Do you understand how terrifying a thing it is for sinful men and women to be in the presence of a holy and righteous God? Do you get just how unapproachable God is in our sinful nature? Because God does not take sin lightly. Let's make no mistake. Let's not kid ourselves into thinking that our sin is not that bad That God, you know, he doesn't really care about it that much. That he'll just sweep it under the carpet. No. As the writer of the Hebrews has already said to us in chapter 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let us never doubt that. And if the law and the old covenant is all we have, then we have a reason to be fearful, just like the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. If Mount Sinai is our home address, then we have a reason to, to in our boots. Because all the law does is lay our sinfulness bare. All the law does is remind us of how we stand condemned as guilty before a righteous and holy God. But Look at what the writer says in verse 22. How different are his words here. Look at the encouragement. The writer says, this isn't where you've come to. This isn't your home address because Through Jesus and the New Covenant, you've come to a different mountain. You've come to Mount Zion. And the picture couldn't be any different. Where there was terror and there was fear at Mount Sinai, there's blessing and there's joy and there's celebration at Mount Zion. Where Sinai showed God's inaccessibility. Don't come too close to this God. Zion shows the full access that we have to God through Jesus Christ. Where Sinai was impersonal, a God who stands far off from his people. Zion shows a God who draws his people near. It is a beautiful picture. And there are lots of things in the Old Testament that Mount Zion represented. Too many for me to list. It's talked about over 150 times in the Old Testament. But sometimes it's talked about as the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's talked about as the city of David. Uh, the temple in jerusalem is also called mount zion and it's used to refer to the land of judah and the nation of israel as a whole sometimes as well if you want to know more about look up mount zion type into google and go to got questions it gives a brilliant kind of overview of what mount zion represents in the old testament and also then in the new but in the in what they all have in common all those different kind of distinctives there's one thing that stands out. Zion is the place where God dwells with his people. It's the place where God dwells with his people. And in the New Testament, Zion refers to God's spiritual kingdom. So the spiritual city of Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the writer's talking about here in in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's that heavenly city that Abraham and all those other faithful men and women of Hebrews 11, it's the city they were looking to by faith, that they could see by faith. And look who's in this heavenly city. This is incredible. Verse 22, innumerable angels in festal gathering. Angels enjoying the party of all parties. I wonder what the best party is that you've ever been to. We're all dying for a good party, aren't we? good wedding party or something like that. This party tops them all. Thousands upon thousands of angels, too many to number, are gathered on the dance floor celebrating and worshiping God with all they have forever. What a picture. And verse 23, we are there with them, the church we are the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. God's chosen people from every tribe, tongue and nation gathered there with these angels in celebration before God. And here's the amazing thing about being called the assembly of the firstborn. Usually the way it works in a family is there's only one firstborn. And and certainly in kind of old Jewish history the the, um, the firstborn was the one, they were the only one in the family who would receive the blessings and the privileges and the rights and the inheritance of being the firstborn. But this is an assembly of the firstborn. Every single one of us who belong in this heavenly city are afforded the honor and the blessings and the privileges of being the firstborn because of Jesus. Because in Jesus, we are seen by God as firstborn sons and daughters. Meaning that everything that Jesus is due, everything that is afforded to him, is given to us as well. Isn't that amazing? One incredible encouragement, especially if you think of these Jewish Christians, because they were losing so much here and now on earth. Their property was being plundered. Their their name was being pulled through the mud. The writer says, Jesus, you have everything. You lack nothing. Think of the eternal blessings that are afforded to you as a firstborn son or daughter. It's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where he's got that doxology, just praising God for what we have received as believers. He says this at the start, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every." spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything we could ever need or want or ask for, given to us through Jesus. And you think of last week, verses 16 and 17, what the writer has said about Esau, the firstborn son who threw away his rights and his inheritance, all for a bowl of stew. Why would we ever throw our eternal inheritance away for things in this earth that fade and that pass away? Why would we do it? And don't gloss over the end of verse 23 because if you're a believer this morning, if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation then the writer says, your name is enrolled in heaven. Your name is in the heavenly register, the greatest register to have your name. The Lamb's book of life, never to be rubbed out, never to be tip over. It's there forever, written with the blood of our Savior Jesus. This is not like being picked for the football team when I was younger, where you're wondering if your name's going to be read out. You're fearing. The anxiety is building. The worry. Maybe he's forgotten about me. The coach. Maybe I haven't done enough to make it onto the team. No. Our acceptance of Jesus and his word is what guarantees our citizenship in this heavenly city. That's it. That's it. If you've trusted in Jesus, your name is already there. It's already in that heavenly register. So you can be absolutely sure when Jesus Christ returns and he calls out for his people and he calls them to himself, your name will be read out too. So we keep going. We keep pressing on to take hold of what is ours, living by faith in our eternal future, eternally secure in Jesus but we're not done yet because as good as that is, look at verse 23 and 24, it just gets better. These blessings just piling up because at Mount Zion, we've come to God, the judge of all under the spirits of the righteous made perfect. How different is this to Mount Sinai? Worlds apart, no longer is our access to God restricted. No longer do we have to tremble in fear in the presence of the judge of all, because through Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, God declares us righteous. The gavel comes down and he says, you are perfect because of my son. And that's where we finish in verse 24, because we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant under the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You haven't come to Moses, the mediator of the old covenant at Sinai, the one who trembled in fear with the rest of the people before God. You haven't come to him, no. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant, our perfect representative before God, our perfect high priest who seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven, the one who offered a perfect sacrifice of his own blood, which speaks a far better word than the blood of Abel. You remember Abel? Abel was killed by his brother Cain, the first murder in the Bible in Genesis. And his blood spilled out in the ground and it cried out to God for vengeance, judgment. But as Jesus' blood was spilled at the cross of Calvary, it didn't cry out for vengeance. It cried out, mercy. Father, have mercy. Forgive them. Pardon them. His blood speaks a far better word. His blood ushers in the innumerable blessings of the new covenant because his blood offers complete forgiveness of sins forever. That's what the new covenant was based on. The foundations in Jeremiah 31, we read about it. You can see it on the screen. I'm just gonna read the last line, but this is the foundations of this new covenant. The blessings we receive are based on God forgiving and forgetting our sins forever. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. If you're a believer this morning, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is not how you relate to God. The law, all it does is remind us of our sinfulness. It just condemns us as guilty before God and, and just piles on more and more judgment. But we have come to Mount Zion, to the covenant which has been ushered in by Jesus Christ, to his grace and his mercy poured out for us. The blessings of Mount Zion are endless. So much better than anything else this world might offer to us. They are worth living for and they are worth dying for. They are worth suffering for. They're worth forsaking things in this life for. Because nothing compares to them. Here's what the writer says, secondly, there's a warning that comes with all this. Because with greater blessings comes greater accountability. The greater accountability with the new covenant. Look at verse 25. There's a stern and sobering warning for those who are tempted to walk away from Jesus For those who are tempted to throw away all these eternal blessings, just like Esau did, throwing away his inheritance for things on earth, for the the easier, the more comfortable life right here and right now. He says in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse Jesus. For they, that's the children of Israel, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Remember the children of Israel. Remember what happened to them. We heard about this already from our uh, writer here in Hebrews in chapters 3 to 6. The children of Israel, they had this frightening experience at Mount Sinai of the holiness and the power and the majesty of God, and yet they still rejected him. They hardened their hearts. They continually broke their covenant promises with him, continually disobeying him and being unfaithful to him with other gods. And in the end, they experienced his judgment. They didn't enter the land that God had promised them and they died in the wilderness. And the writer says, if that's the judgment they received for rejecting God's word on earth, how much worse will it be for us if we reject him who warns from heaven? How much worse for those who reject Jesus who warns from heaven? Remember his warning in chapter 10, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. The writer is saying to these flagging Christians, tempted to throw it all away, if you think that the experience of your forefathers at Sinai sounds awesome and terrifying and fearful, you haven't seen anything yet. Because verse 26, at that time, at Mount Sinai, when God spoke and God's voice shook the earth, the people begged Moses to not let him speak to them ever again. At that time, that's what happened. But now, he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is the things which have been made in order that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. The writer is quoting Haggai chapter 2 here, and he's speaking of a time when God comes in final judgment to wrap up this world, to restore all things, to perfectly dwell with his redeemed people. And at this time, it isn't going to be an earthquake. It's going to be a universe heavens and the earth and the sea and all the dry land will be shaken this time. And only the things which have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ will remain. Everything else will be shaken to the point of obliteration. I don't know if you've seen on TV, maybe on the news, the destruction when an earthquake strikes. Cities laid in ruins, buildings reduced Rubble—it It is a terrifying thing to look at. This speaks of a time when God will shake the whole universe in the heavens so violently that everything will be broken into millions of pieces. Everything created, reduced to dust that can be blown away in the wind. And the only thing that's left standing will be God's eternal kingdom and God's redeemed people. Listen, God's judgment is never a nice thing to talk about. It's not a nice thing to consider. And if this is your first time in church, well, please hear me, we don't always talk in these ways. We don't. But here at Village, we are committed to preaching through passages, through whole texts of Scripture, which means that at times we will come to passages like this and we're not going to gloss over them. We're not gonna avoid them. We're gonna preach the hard stuff because we know it matters. We all, me included in this, we all need to hear and to heed passages like this. There is a seriousness to this because the God who never lies, he promises that there is a time when King Jesus will come back to this earth. He will leave his heavenly throne and he won't come back this time as a baby born in a lowly stable, no, no. He'll come this time as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords riding on a white horse, a two-edged sword in his mouth, coming to judge the living and the dead. And it is a fearful and a terrifying prospect for anyone who stands guilty before God. And that is me without Jesus. That is you without Jesus too. Without Jesus, I deserve God's judgment. I deserve to experience God's wrath with the sin in my heart and the sin which shows itself in my life. As much as I want to avoid that and escape it and forget about it, it's the truth. And I am a sinner who stands guilty before a holy God and so are you. But this is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ, such incredible life-changing news. We must hear the bad news in order to understand just how good the good news really is. Because even though I stand before God guilty and condemned, God is merciful and forgiven. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want us to face his righteous wrath. And so in his love and in his grace, he offers us the way to be safe from the storm of his coming judgment. He offers his only son, Jesus, to stand in my place and in yours, to bear the full force of his wrath and judgment against sin for us so that we don't have to. Jesus Christ, the innocent son of God, he stood at the cross and hung on the cross and became unrighteous for me And he experienced separation from God, his Father, so that I don't have to. He experienced death so that we can experience life forever in eternity. What grace, what love and what mercy there is in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in light of that great news that the writer says, here is the only way we should respond. The only right way to respond. Versus... 28 and 29, let me read them. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Here is the only fitting way to respond to the good news of the gospel. Worship. Thankfulness awe and reverence before our God because we have received if we are believers this morning we have received what we do not deserve we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken the eternal unshakable kingdom of God and so how could our response this morning be anything other than thankfulness and praise and worship to this great God who saves us through his son, Jesus. James Bond has a famous line in all of his films when he orders his staple drink, vodka martini. He always orders it saying, shaken, not stirred. The writer here is serving us up the very opposite thing this morning. He wants us to know that if we're Christians here this morning, We will never be shaken, but he wants us to be stirred. Not shaken, but stirred, stirred up to love and good works. That's what he said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Not shaken, but stirred to offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. As Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, in view of God's great mercy, in view of everything that God has given to us, even though we don't deserve it, what are we to do? We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. All of me, all of the time, given over to worship in God, to praise in Him. That's acceptable worship. That's true and proper worship, as Paul says. Praising Him with our lips, glorifying Him by the lives that we live in obedience to Him and His Word, thanking Him every day when we wake up for the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that He has shown to us. Serving him with a joyful and a glad heart because he alone is worthy of our highest praise. Worship is never a matter of willpower. We cannot worship God by trying to conjure something up within us. Worship is all about wonder. It's about God's grace. It's a heart that's captivated by the awesomeness of God. Knowing that God is a consuming fire, not to be messed with, a fearful prospect, not to be taken lightly in any way, but yet, He's our God. In Jesus Christ, we know that we will not be consumed by the fire, but we will stand forever. You're not a Christian this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it demands a response from you today. The gospel is an ultimatum almost. There's no sitting on the fence. If you've not trusted Jesus, well, the writer makes it plain and simple to us today. We can either do what he's saying to them not to do in verse 25, that's refuse Jesus, turn away from Jesus. But if we do that, He's told us what to expect. He's warned us about what's ahead. He says there is a place to be safe from this storm. There's a place of shelter, of refuge. And the only place to find that is in Jesus. In his death and in his resurrection, trusting in him with our lives. Will you accept God's offer of salvation in Jesus today? Don't delay, don't put it off. There is nothing more pressing in life. Trust me, honestly, it is a matter of life and death. R.C. Sproul, he's a, someone I look to as a great hero in, of the faith in my life. And he's written this line, And it's stuck with me ever since. Right now counts forever. Right now counts forever. Who you trust, what you believe, how you live right now counts forever. I want to finish just by telling you about a time when I stood in the face of a, a consuming fire that was completely out of control. I don't know if you've ever been in a city or something like that before. But I grew up on a farm um, when I was 17. On an Easter Monday, a warm and, and windy day, I remember it so well. Someone um, lit a fire in one of our hay sheds at home. And if you know anything about hay in a shed, it's very dry and it burns very, very quickly. And almost instantly there was a, a roaring, blazing inferno And I just remember the terror in my dad's face as he ran towards me, the whites of his eyes, I could see it. And he cried out to my mom to call 999. And he told me to grab a hose that was there on the farm and to try and to go and do something, anything, as he tried to fill up buckets of water. And I ran with this hose thinking, what am I gonna do, like a little garden hose, what am I gonna do in the face of this fire? And I got there and thankfully, The hose stopped at the door and couldn't go any further. Because as I stood looking at this fire, I was overcome thinking, this is beyond me, completely out of my control. It took three fire engines on that day to put out that fire. All the fire engines in the world will not put out the fire when God, the consuming fire, comes judgment We try and run from him we will not escape but if we run to Jesus today we will be safe forever he is our only hope he is our only refuge in this storm let me pray for us now Father God, we thank you for your word, for how your word speaks to us and cuts us to the bone. Lord, we know that we need to hear passages like this as uncomfortable as it makes us feel, as much as we might squirm. Lord, this is for our good. Lord, we must understand that you will not deal lightly with sin, that judgment is coming, but there is hope, hope of life and of safety and of security in Jesus, in trusting in Jesus. Lord, we must understand today and I pray for anyone that hasn't yet put their trust in Jesus, we must understand that your patient and your kind, your patience and your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, to turn into you. And so I pray that that would happen today. If anyone has not yet put their trust in you, Lord, I pray that they would that today would be the day that they know the eternal blessings of the New Covenant and enter into relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And for us as as Christians today, Lord, I pray that we would know that there is nothing in this world that compares to knowing you, nothing that we could have in this life that is better than what we have already in Jesus. I pray, Lord, knowing that, knowing what we have been saved from, but knowing what we've been saved to, that we would live our lives, to worship you with all that we have, living lives of of worship with awe and reverence. Lord, you are our God. We love you. We thank you. We want to praise you and worship you. And we pray these things in your son Jesus' precious name.